Open your Bibles, if you would, to uh, the third chapter of the Apostle Paul's second letter to the church in Corinth. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Uh, we are getting into the heart of this letter, the, the important stuff. We said last week it's one of the most personal of, of Paul's letters, and we're going to see evidence of that real quickly as we get into this, this wonderful, wonderful letter. Uh, last week we talked about, I hope you saw and understood, the central place that servanthood takes in the life of the Christian. It's pretty much servant by definition, right? There really is no other option for a follower of Christ. You know, we call him Lord, that implies his lordship. We say he is king, that implies his kingdom, his kingship. We are his subjects. And um, I think when I think about the lordship and the um, the kingship of, of Jesus, I think sometimes as Americans we um we kind of take the same attitude towards Jesus as Lord and King that, you know, when you talk to Canadians about the fact that the British monarch is also theirs, they kind of have that thing like, well, yeah, she's on the coins and she's on the money, but that's it. Besides that, you know, we kind of have that same idea, I think, as Christians sometimes. Yeah, he is Lord and he is King, but it's like over there and not here. Well, that's, of course, not how it's supposed to be. That's what we started to see in chapter 2, is just how real his lordship is, how real his place as king is. He is not a figurehead. And if we're not good with that, we need to work on that. And that's really where this morning's text picks up. Um, we are going to go through the whole chapter. It's a fairly, a fairly short chapter, and, it, and it's one piece. We need to see the whole thing together. So let's just jump right in. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, beginning in the first verse. Paul writes, are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need as some letters of commendation to you or from you? Are you our letter written in our hearts, known and read by all men, being manifested that you are a letter of Christ, cared for by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. And such confidence we have through Christ toward God. Not that we're adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God, who also made us adequate as servants of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Father, thank you for your word, Lord. And as we look to it this morning, help us to hear from you. That's our need, Father. As Paul talked about, adequacy not coming from himself, but from you. That's our, 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 our prayer this morning, is that we would hear from, from you. Amen. So the chapter starts with the Apostle talking about his relationship with the church in Corinth. It carries over from the previous chapter. And once he talks about that, he will then go on to talk about a principle that guides his ministry and ours, right? This is a central principle. It's something absolutely essential for us to get. It's the nature of our servanthood. We are called to minister, to be servants, right? And, and if, you have a, if you have a hard time equating, because we tend to think of ministry as the minister, or if you maybe if you spend time in a country where they had different government offices that were called ministries, if you have a hard time equating the idea of ministry with service, just two words for the, the same thing, just remember minestrone soup. That's where the word comes from. You know, at the end of the day, they'd gather together whatever they had left and stick it in the pot, and that's what they served to the servants, the 
Minister. So it's the same word, right? If you can't remember that, minister only suit. Minister, servant. Exact same thing. No, no difference, right? So Paul talks about this, this essential principle, we'll get to it, about the nature of our servanthood. We are called to a ministry or service of spirit, life, and righteousness. And then finally, he puts it into the context of being the people of God, what it is to be the people of God. So that's what we're going to look at. And again, it is so important, it's always so important that we see this, this pattern, because I think as we all realize, in our Western experience of Christianity, we are so individualistic. It's just part of who we are, right? And there is definitely an individual aspect to our faith. There's no two ways about that. I mean, Jesus said, if any one would follow after me, let that one take up that one's cross. And so it, there's definitely an individual component to our faith. I'm not saying that's not true. Um, but there's also the, the other component where we become something larger than ourselves. We become part of the body of Christ, the church. We become uh, subjects of his kingdom. And if we don't get that, if we don't get both of those parts, then our Christian experience will suffer, will struggle. So that's what we're trying to do today, to get both parts. So let's talk about the Apostle Paul and this letter. The first three verses, he introduces the question of a letter. He says, do we need a letter from you or do we need a letter to you? And what he's talking about is simply the custom in antiquity, and it was by no means limited to the first century, that if somebody, if you sent somebody to represent you to do anything, you had to send some way of identifying them because they had no other form of education. And it didn't matter if it was something really big, like you were a, you know, a big important person and you were sending somebody to represent you and do business for you, or if you just had a friend and they were going to a nearby city and they were looking for a job and you were saying, I know a guy in that city that can give you a job, you have to give him something so that when he got there, the guy would know, you know that you were legit. So it was a normative way of guaranteeing who somebody was, guaranteeing their qualifications, who they knew, any of that. It all came down to this letter that would be transmitted. And Paul is saying that while that might normally be needed, you don't need one from us. And we don't need one from anybody else to you because you know us. In fact, you already are that letter. It tells the Corinthian church, if you want to know who we are, just look at yourselves. Because everything that's happened in the Corinthian church is a byproduct of Paul and those who ministered with him. So if you want to know our qualifications, any of that, look at yourself. The very fact that you are a church, he is saying, is due to our having been with you. So why would you question us? That's what those first several verses are right. He says, you know who we are, and you understand the nature of what we do. And that was something that he really did need to make absolutely clear because of the way he communicates in these letters. We talked about the last letter, how kind of in your face it was. And there was another letter in between that may have even been more in your face, right? There was, there was a dichotomy with the way Paul presented himself personally and the way he presented himself in writing that will show up later in this letter. Paul makes this comment uh, in the 10th chapter. Um, speaking of himself, he says his, le his letters are weighty and strong, but his personal presence is unimpressive and his speech contemptible. Paul had heard that said about him. So Paul understood what his reputation was, right? Not so much in person, but when he sends a letter, look out, because it comes through with a punch, right? Paul is saying, I can do that. I can send that kind of letter because... Of, of the bona fides I have already established with you, and the evidence of that you guys have just by looking at yourself, right? And then he says in verse 4, 
such confidence we have through Christ toward God. And that really lays the foundation for where he's going to go with this. He's saying, I can speak the way I can speak because of what God has done. Not because of myself, it's what God has done. And that's lays, that lays the ground for the principle he's going to show them in verses 5 and 6. I can speak the way I speak. I can speak with the confidence that I speak with. I can write the way I write and expect you to accept it as being from God. Right? I have this confidence, and here is, here's the reason he has the confidence. This is the principle. And this is a principle that doesn't just apply to him. Okay, now, the proof of that will come at the end of the chapter, and I'm going to point that out when we get there. So for now, if you would, just take my word for it. He's not talking about something that just applies to himself. He's talking about something in these two verses that applies to every one of us. He says in verse 5 and 6, not that we're adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God, who also made us adequate as servants of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit, for the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. So here's the principle that lays the foundation for Paul's confidence and for the servanthood that we're all talking about here. We started back in chapter 2, right? We're called to be servants. We can do that with confidence because we have been made adequate. That's the foundation. In Christ, we have been made adequate. More importantly, and this is the key for us to understand, is in Christ we are made adequate to do something we are otherwise not in the least bit qualified to do. In Christ we are made adequate, and he speaks as, as a past thing, we have been made adequate to do what we are otherwise totally unqualified to do. Now, we all have abilities, we all have qualifications, there's all things, all things, things we can do, right? And there's some things we can't do. Right? There's some things that we can't do because we're not equipped or not trained. And if we get equipment or training, maybe we can do them. But then there are those things we simply cannot do. I saw a great T-shirt advertised not too long ago. It was, and I hope I don't offend anybody. It's for short people. This T-shirt said, I may be short, but I am powerful. And it had this long list of things the person could do, even though they were short. And the very last line was, but I can't reach the top shelf. No can do, right? Didn't matter. Can't reach the top shelf, right? So there's, we've all got things we can do. We've all got things we can't do. And there are some things, no matter how hard we try, or no matter how much training or equipping we get, we're never going to be able to do it. Paul is talking about an experience of being made suitable for something that which we are otherwise wholly inadequate for. doesn't matter how much intelligence I have, how much education I have, um, in, innate, inborn skills, because we're talking about building the kingdom of God. We're talking about participating as servants to serve our Lord in the expansion, in the building of His church, His kingdom, and none of us are qualified to do that of ourselves because it's a spiritual task. And we do not come from a spiritual basis. We come from a carnal, fleshly nation. That's just who we are. Our inadequacy is foundational. It's basic. I am not of my own nature equipped to do that. I may have certain skills that might be helpful in a superficial way, 
but the core qualifications are totally foreign to me. I don't have them. I don't have them because it's a spiritual task. And there's not a thing I can do to change that. Now, here's the good part about that. That's an equalizer. That means we all start at the same place. None of us have a leg up on any of the others, right? There's nothing which gives anyone, any one of us an innate advantage in this task of being a contributor to building the kingdom. We, can't, we haven't got it. It's totally foreign to all of us. The good news is we are made adequate. Our adequacy is from God. Our adequacy to participate in the building of His church, His kingdom, is wholly from Him. And that actually means at least three different things. The first is obvious. The source of our adequacy is Him. It is by his, the presence of His Spirit in our lives. And again, let's remind ourselves, the Spirit of God comes to dwell in us at the point of salvation. We are born of the Spirit. Paul tells the Roman church, if you do not have the Spirit, you're not of Him, right? We're talking about an experience that is born, in the, it happens at the point of salvation. He dwells in us by His Spirit. That is as good a definition of what it is to be a Christian as anything else I can come up with. Someone in whom the Spirit of God abides. Scripture's clear on that. So we have the Spirit dwelling within us. We have resident within us the one from whom our adequacy comes. Our adequacy comes from Him. That's the source. How about the nature of our adequacy? See, that too is by the Spirit. The adequacy that we have is the active work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, right? But then he adds a third thing, and that is the standard of our adequacy. If you think about it, if you're told that you are adequate at something, there's always a something, right? Your adequacy to do one thing may not be an adequacy to do something else, right? So there's got to be something that he has in mind when he says we're made adequate, and that is, this is verse 6, servants of a new covenant. Verse 6, he has made us adequate as ministers or servants of a new covenant. If we're indeed born again, if we're indwelt by the Spirit, if our lives are animated by the Spirit of God, and if you're a believer, the answer to all those ifs is yes, all of these things, what make us children of God, are the things that make us adequate as ministers of a new covenant. Right? So we've been, adequate, we've been made adequate to do this work. Every one of us. You've confessed Christ, you've been made adequate. You might not know it, might not feel like it, might not look like it, but you've been made adequate. You've been made adequate to serve as a contributing member in the building of his kingdom. The building of, That doesn't mean we all do the same job, obviously. This is where the difference may be in our skill sets or the difference in our background. All these things can factor in, in the details of exactly what we do. But the core qualification is one thing. The Spirit of God resident within us, right? Now, I'm sure some are thinking, no, no, not me. Mm -mm. Doesn't apply to me. In fact, I'm not even sure I'm interested. Just, he's not talking to me. Well, Paul goes on to ask three questions, and this is the rest of the chapter. He goes on to ask three questions about the meaning of our being adequate and the task before us. And he wraps this, it brings us all into on this. And each one of these questions begins with an if. Each one of these questions begin with an if. And it's a question we know the answer to be true, but it all, it all makes a point. So, for example, look at verse 7, if you would. 
But if the ministry of death, engraved in letters on stones, came with glory so that the sons of Israel could not look intently at the face of Moses because of the glory of his face fading as it was, how much more shall the ministry of the Spirit fail to be even more with glory? I want you to think for just a minute. If there's anything in you that makes you want to, I don't think I want to get involved. I don't think I want to be this servant thing. I don't want to be engaged in building the kingdom. I just want to be, you know, be a Christian and be cool, right? Put yourself in, Mo, in, in, in David, uh, Paul's, that's who, Paul's shoes. Raised as a Jew, the finest education a Jewish upbringing could provide. Solid Old Testament scholar, we would call him. Educated by Gamaliel one of the two leading teachers of his day and the leading Pharisee of the day, right? Paul took all of that, looked at Moses. Who's Moses in the Old Testament scheme of things under the law? He is the law giver. All things in the Old Covenant are measured by what Moses said. And Paul, the Jew, the Old Testament scholar, knows the Old Testament better than anybody else in the room, right? He says, Moses spoke with the radiant glory of God, and that is fading away. That is fading away. But what we are offered as ministers of a new covenant works in just the opposite direction. It starts with this, and it becomes ever-increasing glory. It's a pretty good deal. That's a pretty good deal. Moses, the apex of what it was to walk in intimate fellowship with God in the Old Covenant, such that when he came down from the mountain, his face was radiant. He put a veil over it because the people couldn't stand to look at it. The radiance of God's presence was so intense that people were like, would you please cover that thing up? I can't look at it. But what it also covered, as Paul points out, is that was fading. That was The longer he spent away from the presence of God on the mountain, the more the glory faded. On the other hand, as ministers of a new covenant, because the presence of God that animates us is not up on a mountain, it abides within us. This is the deal we're offered. It's actually not an offer, it's a commandment. Um, we have the Spirit of God resident within us such that glory, which is nothing more than the manifestation of His presence. Glory just means the manifestation of His presence, all right? That which is evident or visible or in any way manifests His presence. That manifestation of His presence in our life only increases. See, that's the offer. The Old Covenant, which he describes as a ministry of death, because it ended with the death, either the death of an animal or ultimately with the death of our Savior, he went to the cross because of the law. He fulfilled the law by dying on the cross. Without the Old Testament, his death on the cross makes no sense. There was no reason for him to die without the law. The law directed him to the cross. He died to fulfill the law, right? But the ministry of death in letters engraved on stones came with glory, so the sons of Israel could not look intently at the face of Moses because the glory of his face fading as it was. How shall the ministry of the Spirit fail to be even more with glory? Second question, verse 9. If the ministry of condemnation has glory, because that's what the law did, the law brought condemnation. Not the law's fault, by the way, ours. Because the law represented the standard of God's righteousness, which was great, 
until we stood up next to it, until we looked at ourselves in comparison to it, and the result was mankind's condemnation. All have fallen short. There is none righteous, right? How much more shall the ministry of righteousness abandon, abound in glory? His righteousness manifested in us, not by our efforts, the presence of His Spirit. Third question, verse 11. For if that which fades away was with glory, how much more that which remains is in glory? So all three questions, these if propositions, all illustrate what? That we have such a better arrangement. Such that Paul can say, I'll take all of that that I knew, that I believed, that I grew up with. It's all true. It's just this is better. Because it is an ever-increasing manifestation of his presence through us. Right? Again, we need to remember, we talk about glory. It isn't necessarily brilliant light, although it can be. The light of his face. The light of the temple. When Solomon tilled the temple, what happened? The temple was filled with the radiant light and glory of God. The priests themselves couldn't go in. So his glory can be manifested that way. There's a downside to that, though. People can't get near it. People can't get near it. When Moses' face shone, they said, cover it. When the glory of God filled the temple, the priests themselves, I mean, if anybody's got a chance, it's the priests, right? When the glory of your Lord filled the temple, the priests, we're out of here. Can't stay. Because of the nature of that glory, that manifestation of his presence. But isn't it marvelous that an unsaved person can stand right next to you or I and be completely comfortable because of the nature of the manifestation of the presence of God is by his spirit within us. They may even be drawn to our presence because of the peace and the life and the hope and the joy resident in us because of the presence of His Spirit. Same God is manifesting Himself in both cases, but in the one, because of the chasm between man and God, it pushes away. In another case, it draws closer. So where, do, where does that leave us? Well, verses 12 through 16 um, compare these two ministries, of these two covenants, old and new, right? And he, I'll just go ahead and go through them really quickly. He says in verse 12, Having therefore such a hope, we use great boldness in our speech. We're not as Moses who put on a veil that the sons of Israel might not look intently at the end of what was fading away, but their minds were hardened. And for this very day, the reading of the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted because it is removed in Christ. But to this day, whenever Moses is read, the veil lies over their heart. But whenever a man turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. So if you can, you can come to him on the basis of the old covenant all you want, you're never going to get past that veil. You're never going to get past that barrier. Ultimately get to a place that only produces death and condemnation. But when we approach on the basis of the accomplished work of Christ, his death on the cross for us, all of a sudden the veil is taken away and I can approach God in a whole different way. And that's why people can stand next to us. They couldn't stand next to Moses. Verse 17 is where he wraps it all up. He says, now the Lord is the Spirit. He's not confusing the, the persons of the Godhead. What he's saying is the work of our Savior and the work of the Spirit is one and the same. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. When they served under the Old Covenant, they served a law. Serving today, we serve in freedom. 
we have the tremendous freedom to walk in a simple obedience to God, not occupied every day with the question of what aspect of the law do I have to fulfill as I do whatever I'm doing. I forgot how many hundreds there were. Some scholar added it up. There was hundreds. Every detail of life was governed by law. We're freed from that. There are standards that we live by, yes. Scripture lays those out. But we're freed from the burden of the law. We walk in a freedom, right? Verse 18, we all with unveiled face, beholding at... Did you get that? We all. Remember I made your promise at the beginning? I would show you that he was not just talking about himself. He was talking about every person. He said, we all. That's all of us. And as we saw in the previous letter, if you can say it about the Corinthian Christians, you can say it about anybody, right? Just if you're sitting thinking, I am too messed up. I am just not what God can work with. Wrong. Wrong. If Paul could say this to the Corinthians, he could say it to anybody. Because they were a messed up group. Their sin was profound. And yet Paul says, we all, with unveiled face, beholding as a mirror. And if you have any doubt at all, he's talking to the Corinthians. The comment about the mirror confirms it because the Corinthians were really into their mirrors. They were famous for production of mirrors. If you go to Corinth today, you go to the Museum of Ancient Corinth, and they got all the mirrors up there that they, that they made. So they were so proud of, right? Because their mirrors offered such a good... You get a mirror anywhere, right? But you get a Corinthian mirror, it gave you the best image you could get, right? So Paul's pointing his finger right at them. He says, we all, with unveiled face, behold as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, being transformed into, this is mind-boggling, being, being formed, transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. Um, we used to sing a song, I was really hoping Scott Ventrice, Scott would be here today, because I know he knows it, right? Um, some of you that are older may, may remember this one, old song, From Glory to Glory, He's Changing Me. How many remember that one? Oh, man, I am really showing how old I am here. From Glory to Glory, He's Changing in Me. Right? His likeness and image to perfect in me. From Glory to Glory, He's Changing Me. The love of God shown to the world. Coming back to anybody else? We sang that one a lot, right? And, and I used to think, I used to think when we sang that one, what it was talking about was the change in me. I love the song because it talks about change, right? Boy, do I need it. Um, it was talking about the change from the piece of work I used to be to the slightly improved change person that I am today, right? This, this change that goes in the outward expressions of my life, which I hope are getting better, right? The outward manifestations of a godly character. But... That's not the change he's talking about. He is talking about the change that happens on the inside. The change in the manifestation of God's glory that is not by conformity to outward law, but is a simple expression of the God who resides within us. And that is something that any one of us can expect and should expect. It should be the normative condition of every Christian, but we all with unveiled face beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord are being transformed. Doesn't say might, 
Doesn't say maybe. Doesn't say if you check off all these boxes. No. We are being transformed. Now we can frustrate it. We can quench it. We can, through willful disobedience, get in the way of it. But we can't stop it. Not as long as His Spirit abides within us. Because this is from the Lord. This is the presence of His Spirit in it. This is why, you know, I really, I really value and, and cherish the teachings of the Old Testament. I don't talk about it a lot. I don't read Hebrew. I wish I did. The Old Testament would be so much more rewarding if I did. But I don't have that gift. That opportunity didn't make itself known. So I'm able to process the New Testament so much more readily. I can read it better. But even if I could, the treasures offered to us by the Old Covenant simply bring us to the point that we realize how desperately we need Jesus. And the promises that are made in the New Covenant simply inform us how glad we should be that we don't live under the law, but we live lives animated by, guided by, directed by His Spirit. Man, that is freeing. That is so absolutely freeing. If you're, if you're dealing with a lot of stress in your Christian walk, like, I just don't know if I'm doing it right. Well, you aren't. Um, I just don't know if I'm... I don't know if I'm measuring up. You aren't. Um, I don't know if, if, I, I don't know, oh, if I'm good enough. Why are you even asking that question? Um, yeah, no, we're not. And, and that's not a fatalism. That's just a react, recognition of reality, right? Okay, um, I'm not doing a good enough job on a spiritual discipline. You're not. But that's not what counts. Those are details. The core issue is, am I simply inviting the Spirit of God every day to do His work in me. Man, there's a lot less anxiety in that, isn't there? Right. If, I'm, if I'm struggling finding what I, what I should be doing, well, engagement in the body of Christ is a really good way to find out. Right. Presence around other believers and, and, and just the experience of seeing how God moves. That's why our testimonies are so important and why our prayer requests are so important. Being engaged in a body of Christ, I begin to understand how I fit in, what I should be doing, right? From glory to glory, he is changing me. The love of God shown to the world. Father, I thank you for your word, Lord. And Father, I guess in so many ways it was easier when there was just a whole bunch of rules, a whole bunch of laws, and we could do our level best to keep them. If only we could have pulled it off, but we couldn't because of who we are and the clay we're made of, Lord. Father, we thank you, Lord. We thank you that you made it so clear in your word how desperately we couldn't do that and hence how desperately we need the ministry of the Savior, Lord. How good it is to know that when we share the communion elements, we are remembering what He has, has done for us and what you're actively doing for us every day in our lives by your Spirit. Father, as we go into this week, Lord, and all the challenges we're going to face, all the difficulties we're going to face, Father, I pray that our first response will always be to turn to you and invite you by the presence and power of your spirit to work out your image for the manifestation of your glory in us. We can't go wrong that way, Lord.
Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and worship the Lord this morning.